Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. Used to be that to get an authentic Neapolitan-style pie, you either had to wait in line at a wood-fire pizzeria, or get on a plane to Naples. But Uni changed all that. Founded in 2012, the company launched the world's first portable pellet pizza oven that can heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, the searing temperature needed to get a bubbly, thin-crust Neapolitan pizza. Over the years, Uni Pizza Ovens have continued to define the category with carbon steel shell for insulation, optimized airflow engineering for precise temperature control, and new models with different fuel options, wood, charcoal, and gas, to suit the needs of every outdoor cook. The latest model, the super versatile Uni Karu 16 multi-fuel oven, makes it so that you can choose between three fuels, fire to fire. So on days when you have time to chill out with a glass of wine in the wood smoke as your log heats up, you can. And for those nights when you're in a rush, all you have to do is hook up the gas, and at the time it takes to shape your dough and chop some topping, your uni oven will be ready to go. Learn more at uni.com. That's O-O-N-I dot com. Welcome to the Modernist Pizza Podcast. This is episode 5, A Plum Tomato. Today's special, sauce. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Along with Nathan Mervold, founder of Modernist Cuisine, and its head chef, Francisco Magoya, who together co-authored Modernist Pizza, a 1,700-page book about the art, history, and science of pizza, we'll chew over the world's most popular food with the people who have been part of its storied past and are shaping its yet-to-be-told future. Why is the humble plum tomato the gold standard for pizza sauce? According to the AVP, there are only three tomato varieties permitted to make a real authentic pizza napolitana. San Marzano, the most famous infamous, Pianolo, known for being preserved in bunches hanging from a piece of twine, and finally, the Corberino. 
We'll talk to growers of the two latter tomato types and find out what sets their fruit apart. We'll also find out what happens when a California canning company joins forces with a wood-fire pizza legend. How northern Italian pesto genovese became the go-to green sauce for many pies. And what sauces modernist cuisine constituted as pizza sauce. Spoiler alert, that can of soup in your pantry may comply. What's in your sauce? But first, Nathan frames tomatoes role in all of this. Tomatoes came back with Columbus or subsequent Spaniards from the New World. They were viewed with great suspicion, in part because the Europeans recognized that it was a member of the deadly nightshade family. And it took a long time for people to accept eating tomatoes. It tended to happen earlier in southern parts of Europe, like in Naples, because they grew really well. The first toppings people put on pizza were not tomato, though. The earliest references we can find were either just oil or oil and a small kind of fish that they would get in uh, Naples. Tomatoes turned out to be, in retrospect, they're a perfect thing to put on a pizza because they're flavorful, they are sweet, they're also sour, and the sour helps balance the fact that uh, you usually eat them with a whole bunch of cheese on it. And so that combination became a classic. Can you even imagine oil or small fish being the predominant pizza sauce? Funny thing is, tomatoes weren't even held in the highest regard before they found their way to Italy. Although the tomato was not as important a crop in the New World as, say, beans or squash or corn was, those all had substantial breeding and development of cultivars in the New World before they ever came to Europe. Famously in the volcanic soils of uh, Mount Vesuvius, was what we would call a plum-shaped tomato or pear-shaped tomato today, which is elongated. Originally, there was no notion that there was any special variety. Now, in the 1990s, a group in Naples decided that they would try to seize back the definition of pizza. Their view is that pizza was their thing, and here it had gone and conquered the world in the form of Americanized pizza. And so they wanted to define and get European Union protection for pizza as a special food, or pizza napolitana. Analogous to the protections that exist for, say, Roquefort cheese or champagne or a um, a Grand Cru wine. Well, in the process of defining it, they were quite ambitious and they... um, they retroactively went and defined a margarita pizza in a way that was probably rarely served prior to this. Now, this committee is meeting in 1989, 1990, and I think they published in 91. And they decided that the only proper mozzarella was mozzarella de bufala, and uh, that's made from buffalo milk, and it's its own story and that the only proper tomato was a San Marzano tomato. So today, if you walk into Italy and order a margarita, you're not going to get this official margarita. However, many restaurants now have a pizza called the Dop, (laughs) which is the DOP margarita. Others will just put DOP margarita on as a separate line item. 
it's usually a euro or two more expensive because the tomatoes are more expensive and the buffalo cheese is more expensive. DOP stands for the Italian phrase that means protected designation of origin. In a sense, it's a certification that guarantees not only the variety of tomato, but where it comes from. But that doesn't always translate in the pizza sauce. There is a characteristic flavor that tomatoes get when you cook them hard. Either boil them or saute them for a long period of time or pressure cook them as you do for canning. And when people try to make a pizza based on absolutely fresh, wonderful raw tomatoes, it's often missing that flavor. And the best way to get that flavor in concentrated form would be tomato paste. That stuff is reminiscent of tomatoes, but it's not like a raw tomato. The pizzolos I know and respect, both in Italy and the United States, will only make a pizza with fresh tomato during a very short part of the year when they can get absolutely perfect tomatoes. And even so, they don't regard it as a fresh version of the normal tomato. When pizza came to the United States, of course, the tomatoes, even the canned tomatoes that were available were different. You couldn't always get Italian canned plum tomatoes. And so people in the U.S., started doing what any chef would do with an ingredient, which is they started cooking with it. And so a classic New York pizza or virtually every pizza in the U.S. that uses tomato sauce starts with a cooked sauce. This is not to say canned tomatoes are inferior in any way. If anything, they're more reliable in ways fresh tomatoes aren't. At the very least, they're a starting point. You start with the canned tomato, it already is pretty much pre-cooked. But the point of cooking it is you can adjust the texture by cooking it down so that you're evaporating off liquid. You can adjust the flavor by putting in herbs and other things that will infuse through the sauce much better if you do it in a uh, under with heat. And I don't see any reason you shouldn't cook your tomato sauce. In fact, even if you go back to, to making a very Neapolitan-style pizza, some of those pizzas, I think, are very difficult to make well if you don't adjust your sauce. And the, the great example of that is a pizza marinara, which is just sauce, right? There's no cheese on it. There are three types of tomatoes that can traditionally go on a margarita pie. The sweet, pulpy, low-acid San Marzano, then two varieties that might not have had their time in the sun yet, Corberino and Pianolo. Francesco Vistola runs Mita Farm with his son Fabrizio. Their prize Pomodorini Corberino is a pear-shaped cherry tomato, bright red with a typical sweet flavor and tart notes. They're very rich in minerals and vitamins C and A due to their proximity to Mount Vesuvius's volcanic land. Corberino is an ecotype that found its perfect habitat on the hills of Corbara, a tiny village on the hilly area at the beginning of the Amalfi Coast. My family, but especially my wife's family, has been farming tomatoes for generations. 
Right now we live and have our farm here in Petsum, around 60 miles south of Napoli. But we grew up in the Agro Sarnese Nocerino, the famous land of tomatoes, at the foot of Monte Latari, the hills where Corberino tomatoes grow. In the 90s, Francesco's dad started growing Corberino, mainly supplying big tomato companies. But their incredibly intense flavor, in addition to their dense pulp, set them apart, making their complex aromas ideal on pizza. Right after the harvest at the peak of ripeness, the tomatoes are brought to the lab where they're vigorously washed. Then there's a manual selection to separate the perfect cherry tomatoes from the ones that have some imperfections. The imperfect tomatoes do not get thrown away. They're used to make the tomato puree that will fill the jar with the whole Corberino cherry tomatoes. We sterilize the glass jars and we manually place a basil leaf, some Corberino tomato puree, the whole tomatoes with their skin still on, and a pinch of salt. Finally, the glass jar is sealed and pasteurized for about an hour. And there you go, ready to eat. That kind of processing has minimal impact on the flavor of the tomato, especially because they keep the tomatoes whole with their peel. If you take a Corberino tomato right out of the jar, you're still going to taste all that minerality, salinity, sweet and tart aromas, as if you were eating one straight off the plant. The pint-sized pianolo grows nearby. Pasquello and Perto, owner of Sapori Vesuviani Farm, is right in Mount Vesuvius National Park, the smallest national park found in Italy. It's so rich in culture and agriculture that he harvests his heirloom tomatoes alongside apricots and zucchinis reinforcing his Filaria corta approach, a.k.a. farm-to-table. Mount Vesuvio is a volcano, so very rich in minerals, sulfur, and especially potassium. It's a hilly area with dry soil and at the same time exposed to the breeze of the Mediterranean Sea. This salty breeze has natural preservative properties and gives a special mineral aroma to the products that grow in the area. Since 2003, Imperto has employed the idea of biodynamics. He's drastically reduced the use of chemicals, preferring that of green manure and crop rotation. He started using mycorrhizae, a type of fungi that protects and enriches the roots of the plants to fight harmful fungi and parasites, naturally preventing disease. It also creates a barrier around it that prevents the uptake of nitrates, a known carcinogen in the soil. So much protection for a DOP product. The name Pianolo means hanging in the Neapolitan dialect and comes from the traditional way of preserving this tomato, hanging from the ceiling in a bunch. In fact, this is the only tomato variety in the world that can be preserved semi-fresh for almost a year. Harvest time is in July through August, and the tomatoes can be consumed until May through June of the next year. It's really a miracle of nature. This happens because pianolo tomatoes grow on a dry soil, without irrigation, and they developed a resilient DNA over time to thrive in this hostile environment. This contributes to a thick skin and unique flavor, sweet with a bitter finish, which pairs perfectly with local shellfish and the classic caprese salad. 
oltre che per la salvevolezza, oltre che per il suo sapore particolare amarognolo, anche Not only its flavor and long shelf life make the pianolo an unparalleled tomato variety, but also its shape. I like to say that the pianolo tomatoes are like a diva and that they always want to draw attention to themselves. They have a unique shape with a pointy tip called pizzo in Neapolitan dialect that makes them stand out. The name Pacciatelle comes from the Neapolitan dialect and means cut in half. It's another typical preservation method of the Vesuvio area, with the tomatoes sliced in half and manually placed in glass jars to keep the fragrant flavor of pinolo tomatoes much longer than what the fresh tomato allows. Neapolitan people like to use pianolo tomatoes in their Christmas recipes when the flavor is at its peak. With time, the skin gets wrinkled, just like our skin as we get older. As they say in Italy, gaina vecchia fa buon brodo, that literally translates to an old hen makes good broth. So the longer they age, the more intense the flavor gets. The older I get, the wiser I hope to become. In college, I bought a can of so-called pizza sauce that moved with me from apartment to apartment and was left unopened until graduation. You might know it. It's called Don Pepino, a yellow can with a picture of a plump pizzaiolo holding a can of the very same sauce on the label. I thought it was glorious. As a journalist, I now relish in the fact that it had been made by the Scalfini family since the 1950s. A great story. Well, it was. Now it's owned by the holding company B&G Foods, and though it boasts Jersey fresh tomatoes, do we really know what's in the can? Rob DiNapoli comes from a long line of canners. His family has had a fruit and tomato business in California since 1937, Sun Garden Packing Company in San Jose. Most of their business was private label or contract packing. Think retail chain supermarkets and large pizza franchises. But they weren't really working with chefs. DiNapoli explains... I remember working with Domino's very closely. And so we were doing a lot of business, but I really wasn't interacting with chefs directly. It was mostly distributor, you know, presidents of distributors and large chains. And that went on until uh, just about the turn of the century, 2000, 2001. We started struggling a bit and big companies were coming in and investing huge amount of money in their plants, in their facilities. And at that time, the family decided to sell the cannery which we did. And I was, after negotiating the deal and staying on with the new owner for a year, really wasn't working out too well. I was a long way from home. Uh, the cannery had then moved out to the Central Valley. So we parted ways and I thought, well, nobody's nobody's using this little DiNapoli brand, which we had sort of had in the back of the warehouse for 20 years. I, I thought I'd go out and, and show it off to some of the chefs. So DiNapoli packed his car and took his cans on the road, crisscrossing the state and following it all the way down to Phoenix, Arizona, to see the near-mythical Chris Bianco of Pizzeria Bianco, whom he had only heard about and decided to visit in the blind. So somebody said, you really ought to be talking to the best pizza maker around, or at least the most well-known and, and most interesting. So I started watching some YouTube videos of him, and I can tell you I was totally, um, I was totally intimidated <laughs> with the prospects of going down there and showing them my family's tomatoes, uh, but I did it anyway. You know, I just said, I'm a salesman. I mean, how bad can it be? So I went down there with my family's canned tomatoes under my arm and knocked on the door, and Chris wasn't there, but Marco uh, was there making the dough, 
with the starter and flour all over him. And I thought it was Chris. So I handed him the can. I said, I am Rob Napoli. And he said, um, I'm not Chris. I'm his brother, Mark. And if you want, you know, Chris type of person, if you want him to open the can, he really needs to know who you are. <laughs> so he said, he said, why don't you come back for dinner uh, tonight and, and he'll be in, you know, making pizza. And, and so I was, I, I knew that it was a couple hours wait, but I was by myself and I got a great spot on the corner of the bar there. And, you know, within with not too long, he got caught his eye and went over there and, and said, I had something to show him. And he said, oh, that's great. Why don't you come back when I'm done with service at 930? So I hung around there and sure enough, we talked till my goodness, at past 12. Chris just really, really, you know, with all due respect with Italy, he was buying little 28-ounce cans of Miracle of San Gennaro tomatoes and shipping them over. And uh, he said, with all due respect, I just, I would love to do something local. You know, I, I just feel like California's got great weather and good soil and great farmers. You know, why can't we do something like that uh, together? And, um, and so that's how it started. When they joined teams, they also combined names and Bianco de Napoli was born. Currently, they can four different products, whole peeled tomatoes, crushed in puree, organic sauce, and tomato paste, all made of vine-ripened California tomatoes. I might have been accused in different periods of my career that I maybe oversold, you know, or talked too much as I'm in front of a chef, and I've kind of learned, you know, bring a sample, and, you know, if they don't want to open it now, open it later, but, you know, just try the product and see if you like it, and you know, it may not be for everybody and that's fine. You know, we don't, you know, we're not, we're, we just, we just want to make it available. And, and if it fits, that's great. Um, and, and I think that's the way we've approached it. Although, you know, we try, I, I do try to make it fit Chris's style. He's the operator. I supplied the materials, you know, Chris is a pizza maker. So if he says it needs more salt or it needs a little heavier juice, that's what we do. If you're in the pizza world, I assume you know of Chris Bianco. Even those outside of the industry have heard of his lore. Pizzeria Bianco opened in 1987 and was a trailblazer for wood-fired pizza in America. Bianco is the maestro behind that. He was born in the Bronx and during high school worked in a pizzeria in Austin, New York, which later led to his selling homemade mozzarella out of his apartment. His only goal? To make people happy. He found that path by using the most sincere ingredients. I don't think I'm really a maestro of anything, but I... I... I do take a similar approach to everything. I kind of use gravity and reason to kind of drive most positions that I put myself in. The reality of this business is, you know, you know, you're doing 300 pizzas, your world's on fire. Not really knowing that I was trying to do that, just saying, hey, can I put things in a window that they will succeed? Kind of like stone, you know, like like Stonehenge. You know, you you said, how do they move those fucking big pillars? And well, they use physics. They dug a ditch. They let it teeter. They flipped it, you know. So I use a lot of those theories, you know, just like what could I do? You know, how can we work together? And that's always been my thing about mastering nothing, which was this is a relationship business, you know. Well, the restaurant industry for sure, but they're definitely like speaking specifically of pizza. You know those generic pizza boxes that say, you tried the rest, now try the best? Well, Bianco thinks in reality there was no best. And that's because of the so-called secret ingredients many pizzerias were using. You know, they're all using the same kind of bromated white flowers and pre-mixed sauce. And, you know, even though the technique could be great. And believe me, I love, I love those things. I love nostalgia and I love 
you know, going back for a good slice, you know. But I think there's only so much that you can do with pedestrian ingredients. You know what I'm saying? Like there's only so far you can take it. And I found that like to proclaim something that was the best and then saying, I'm not going to tell you what's in it or it's a secret seemed somewhat, you know, confusing. Bianco considered the tomato. What kinds to use, how thick of a sauce, how much to apply. You know, pomerola or, or uh, uh, you know, just passata, thicker passata that you could put on pretty thick. You know, you can, I can see it in my mind where, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit like uh, kind of raking cement in a way where, you know, you're making kind of a trough. You know, one thing I would say when I'm building a pizza is like, you know, you put things where they ain't, you know, you put things where they're not. And that kind of, you know, kind of thicker sauce that I remember, you know, without really piece of tomatoes, very thick puree that gave you good coverage and it made it easier, I would say, to keep in a circle, easier to make consistency. I found later on that, like, I wanted your your teeth to be involved. You know what I'm saying? I thought if I could have things a little bit like irregular chunks where, you know, take something in your mouth, you're going through this process and hopefully you're digging pizza, but but all of a sudden, you know, that you know, there's an explosion of, of some flavor and it just could be from you biting it, just like with anything else. You know, applesauce from an apple, you know, it's you want to feel the crunch, the skin, you know, even even natural salinity or, or, or sour or whatever it is. I just thought that if I could take something from super smooth to, you know, how thick would it be? We, you know, like super chunky? Well, maybe too much skin on, skin off. You know, how thick is the passata? And um, so what I remember as a kid was a thicker more kind of, uh, kind of a, I'd say if it was like a more of a Sunday gravy growing up in New York, you know what I mean. Pizzeria Bianco could have relied on the past. The model wasn't broken, so why did he feel like he had to fix it? After meeting Rob DiNapoli, he finally found a way to use local tomatoes worthy of sauce. You know, I, I always made time for farmers and, and artisans and cheesemakers. And I always made time. I've never been too busy if I'm breathing, you know. I didn't want a price sheet. I didn't want a fucking you know, hear that they were the best. I wanted to know, first I wanted to meet the people because good shit from bad people can't be really good shit. And uh, I tasted his tomatoes and we talked and we talked about his family and his journey. And I like the story itself, you know, like I do like people that come from other places and want to do things that are better than they found them. And and that's what I think like in, you know, in, in Sac Valley or in, in California or different regions of the world that, you know, Italian immigrants or immigrants, you know, from Chapex, Mexico, where they were discovered, or, or, or Chile, you know, took tomatoes and planted them in places that make sense. So I hope that, you know, we look at tomatoes like wine regions. You know, it is the tour. It is, you know, the seeds, of course, are important in the varietal, but it's always going to be about the farmer's ability to coax the earth with, you know, crop rotation and what grew last year. And, you know, uh, like with us, like you we're dodging fires and pandemics. To get something they can is is is, you know, wherever you are in the world is something to be celebrated. So even though I was using Italian tomatoes at that time, because they were, for me, my favorite that I could get. And I did know the people. I love the story and yada, yada. But to have an American tomato or in one pretty close to me, our neighbor in California, of an Italian immigrant's family that, that you know, uh, I could use was also intriguing. But at that time, it, you know, I wanted to make an, a, a commitment to organics if I did switch. Um, and I wanted to know, I wanted to, you know, like if it's a rumor or a tomato, I always want to consider the source. And Rob was nice, but but I didn't want to put my, you know, name on anything. And I wasn't really 
at that time, you know, really ready to, to switch. And we, you know, kept in touch over the next year or two. And then the next thing, you know, Rob approaches, hey, I've got this farmer, uh, one of our farmers, Cliff Fong at the time in Woodland, California, that was willing to grow tomatoes for us. And that first year was life changing for me because because we were able to not only grow a great tomato and we consider the source and look into the eyes of the farmer. And, you know, I like we're talking now, I, I wanted to connect in a human way. I didn't want to read something from the back of a fucking label. I wanted to tell the story in the back of the label where you could dig into it, hopefully at some point and humanize it. Bianco Di Napoli now produces thousands of cases a year. They're not solely the stock of Pizzeria Bianco anymore. You can buy them yourselves throughout the country and feel more connected to Chris Bianco. If he hasn't completely endeared you already, his tomatoes will. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, a company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. Used to be that to get an authentic Neapolitan-style pie, either had to wait in line at a wood-fire pizzeria, or get on a plane to Naples. But Uni changed all that. Founded in 2012, the company launched the world's first portable pellet pizza oven that can heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, the searing temperature needed to get a bubbly, thin-crust Neapolitan pizza. Over the years, Uni pizza ovens have continued to define the category with carbon steel shell for insulation, optimized airflow engineering for precise temperature control, and new models with different fuel options, wood, charcoal, and gas, to suit the needs of every outdoor cook. The latest model, the super versatile Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven, makes it so that you can choose between three fuels, fire to fire. So on days when you have time to chill out with a glass of wine in the wood smoke as your log heats up, you can. And for those nights when you're in a rush, all you have to do is hook up the gas, and at the time it takes to shape your dough and chop some toppings, your uni oven will be ready to go. Learn more at uni.com. That's O-O-N-I.com. Tender leaves of freshly torn basil strewn atop a pizza is like confetti for a fete. It somehow elevates an ordinary seeming pie to something sensational. I've always thought of pesto, the Genovese green sauce, as an extension of that idea. In Liguria, northwestern Italy, along the Riviera, it's a basil-based paste that is potently fragrant and fantastic on pizza. Except one should never cook it. It's best applied raw after a pie has been baked. Laurel Evans, a native Texan, recently wrote a book about Liguria, where her husband is from. She spent the last 17 years learning the family tradition. A traditional pesto is obviously basil leaves, but a precise kind of basil leaf. Pine nuts, garlic, parmigiano, and pecorino. I don't think I'm forgetting anything. Oh, obviously olive oil, a lot of olive oil. (laughs) So that would be a typical pesto and it would have to be made in a marble mortar and pestle because that is the best way to treat basil leaves to not make them oxidize. So it more tears the leaves rather than smashing them into oblivion. But nobody actually makes it like that. Well, I can't say nobody. People very rarely make it like that, even within Liguria, because it requires a lot of elbow grease, a lot of time, and you can't make big quantities unless you have an enormous mortar and uh, a lot of muscle power. So what is the difference from a 
flavor profile, but also visual profile if you make it in mortar and pestle? I would say that the flavor of the basil is much more intense and sweeter. Whereas if basil gets oxidized, it, it has a little bit of bitter undertones. And so when you get it in from the mortar and pestle, it's uh, apart from the fact that the consistency is better and you can, you can even see the difference rather than the leaves being chopped up into little, little tiny pieces, they're almost torn and they, and they get creamier. I'm not, it's hard to explain until you see it. The basil flavor just comes out so much better. But then again, <laughs> you can make it in a mixer with a few tricks, which I talk about in the book where you don't completely ruin the basil leaves. You know, it's all about keeping them cold, keeping the blades of the mixer cold, chilling the olive oil. So there's some things you can do to it and make it in a, in a Cuisinart and not completely ruin your basil. Heat is the enemy. It feels like a very key term that I'm about to lead the question with. How would you apply pesto to a pizza? Well, I would never cook it. <laughs> I had a conversation in, in preparation for this podcast. I called up my friend Ezio Rocchi, who is an expert in the region on focaccia. He's a consultant and he goes on TV a lot and talks about focaccia. And he also you know, makes pizza, but not so much. He's mostly a focaccia guy, focaccia and bread guy. And I said, Ezio, mm, am I wrong to say that, you know, pesto on pizza, you find it in Liguria, but it's not, you know, looked upon very well. And his word to me was, blasphemous laurel it's blasphemous (laughs) so i would say that it's 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 not looked well upon because a lot of times when pesto goes on pizza pizza chefs erroneously cook it and pesto should never be cooked it absolutely ruins the flavor profile and the consistency and it turns black and there's absolutely no reason to that said, I have had it on pizzas before, and I have had it on pizzas in Liguria before, so it's not like it isn't done, but the pesto should always be drizzled on after the pizza is cooked. It should never be served with um, tomato. Just pesto and tomato is not something that is um, often mixed over here. So it would be on a white pizza, and not so much with mozzarella. They often do something they call like a stracco pizza with stracchino or crescenza cheese, so kind of a creamy, tangy white cheese and some basil and sometimes I'll even put green beans and potatoes on it to sort of recall the flavors of a traditional Genovese pasta dish with pesto and potatoes and green beans. When it comes to pizza in Liguria, there's a dish called sardinera, a pre-Neapolitan pizza-esque recipe that resembles the pizza ladier of Provence in France, topped with tomatoes, anchovies, garlic, and oregano, derived from the word sardine, but there's no sign of pesto. But pesto isn't limited to the Ligurian archetype. I personally love all iterations of pesto. I've made a cilantro pesto before in Texas, which I have absolutely adored. I have in my refrigerator right now uh, pistachio pesto sent to me from a company in Sicily that makes their own pistachio pesto, and it is absolutely delicious. It's hard to go wrong with a nut and cheese sauce with some aromatic herbs in it, honestly. It's almost always delicious, but just be careful where you are when you call it a pesto. While in Los Angeles, Michael McSherry, proprietor of Pizza at Gra in Westlake, has found pistachio pesto as a flawless foil for sourdough pizza. Maybe it's the Gaelic green in him, or maybe it's just that he's not limiting himself to convention. There's no protocol, 
for sauce made with love. Grow means love in Gaelic, in the Irish language. Do you know, it wasn't a massive thing in the small town I grew up in. Uh, there wasn't even a pizza place there. But as I kind of got into my teens, went to school in Dublin, and, and then went over to England uh, to university, I, I, yeah, pizza became a big thing for me. I started off maybe eating a lot of cheese toasties at home in that small village. Uh, that was the closest I got to pizza. The first sourdough pizza came into, first sourdough pizza restaurant came into London, in, into my neighborhood in Brixton at the time, about 15 years ago. Just before that, a year or two before that, I was diagnosed with being gluten intolerant. So I, I actually had to stop eating standard pizza, if you want to call it. Um, and so that was kind of heartbreaking at the time. And then the first sourdough pizza place came in. And uh, I gave it a go. My body responded really well to it. You know, 14 or 15 years in advertising, I was beginning to think more broadly, you know, what, what is it I want to do? What kind of business would I want to set up if I was to leave advertising? I was getting into ferments and also natural wine at the time. So now I'm going back to like six, seven years ago. It all began to kind of like build momentum in my mind. And I then took the leap of faith of leaving my job in advertising flying out to Los Angeles. I had done some research before I came out to see who was doing what in the pizza market. I was drawn by the weather and also the opportunity to bring something unique to the city. Sourdough is sour, of course, and is the predominant flavor of most of Gras pies. In that, McSherry had to adjust his sauces to pair with such a powerful flavor profile. We kind of take it pizza by pizza. It's fair to say we very... Uh, we're very considerate towards each of the recipes and and even towards, you know, the red sauce. You know, we we, we use plum tomatoes from Spain, actually, and uh, we crush them with a hand mill. And the idea by, behind that is to get the right texture. So, like, texture is really key to all our pizza toppings, uh, as well as the flavor. So it, it really varies, you know, across... The different pizzas. The, the, if we like touch on the pistachio pesto one, um, you know, the, the reason why I think that, you know, became a, a, a concept was because pistachios taste great. It's nothing more complicated than thinking that way. Um, and also to do something different. It's on top for uh, the main reason is for the flavor. We, we make the pesto naturally fresh uh, every, every, every couple of days. And, um, yeah, we, we, we like the flavor it gives off without it being cooked. And also, um, I think visually as well, it, it, it looks better when it's, it's kind of sitting up on top of the cheese as opposed to kind of melted into it. What is kimchi sauce? What is kimchi sauce? Kimchi sauce is, it's a sauce we make up as kind of using a lot of the same ingredients we use for our fresh kimchi but we add in a certain percentage of tomato sauce into it. So it becomes more uh, pizza-friendly for spooning across the uh, pizza dough before it goes into the oven. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's a kind of a amalgamation of the two, of, of our kimchi and the tomato sauce. There's bagna cotta on the menu as well, a 16th-century Piedmontese dish made from garlic and anchovies 
served in a manner similar to fondue, usually as a dip for raw or cooked vegetables, but is now for an undressed flatbread made with their pizza dough. While their most popular salad has become a go-to order for those wanting to mop up ranch with their crusts. So the ranch is actually made up of Persian whey and creme fraiche. And then it's got, you know, lots of herbs. It's got parsley, tarragon, chives, loads of dill, uh, lemon juice, garlic. And yeah, that, that is served with our current butter lettuce salad uh, with fresh parm and toasted sunflower seeds. And then we also sell it as a ranch. People just love it. So it's impossible to take it off the menu. But when did ranch, an all-American salad dressing, associate itself with pizza? Abby Reisner, author of Ranch, a book with 60 recipes utilizing said sauce, asserts why ranch has become a cultural phenomenon. It dates back to the uh, 1950s when a man named Steve Henson opened a ranch outside of Santa Barbara. We know that as Hidden Valley Ranch. (laughs) Um, And it originally was a mail-order company. It was a, a dry mix of dried buttermilk and the herbs, and you would uh, mix it with buttermilk and mayo, kind of like a boxed cake mix, but tangier. Um, And then down the road, flash forward 20 years later, eventually its popularity leads to a buyout from Clorox for $8 million. Um, (laughs) So really rags to riches there. The 90s took over as the top selling salad dressing from Italian dressing. But one moment I think is really important is 1986, Cool Ranch Doritos came onto the scene. And I think that was just the golden age of snacks. And from the 80s to the 90s, and this whole kind of like retro nostalgia type situation we had going on, ranch just became so popular. And um, another big moment was, I think it was 1994. Apparently, Domino's invented ranch's pizza. Debatable if they actually did, but they really are the ones that brought it to a mass marketing scale. And from then on, it was just up and up and up. So from what I understand, the lore of it all is that Domino's served ranch dressing with a different purpose. I think it was something to do with their chicken dippers. Someone there had sort of a happy accident of dipping the pizza crust into the ranch, and then it just kind of took off. Domino's is headquartered in Ann Arbor. And so to me, I think it's a really good college town moment. Um, Lots of late night college pizza. My own pizza ranch memories is very specifically tied to college. I had this one friend who loved ranch dressing with a burning passion and she would just like pour it on her pizza every time we were together. Uh, So really seeing it in action for me drove that home. But yeah, I think it's something, some magical combination of perfect location of being in a college town, probably just word of mouth at that point um, and strong marketing. But also, it's just good. (laughs) There's no saying no to something that's good. But it's not just dressings that have turned into pizza sauces. Modernist Cuisine found that soups can easily be converted into cohesive sauces with a few adjustments, as per Francisco's infinite wisdom. If I think about soup, soup is soupy, it's loose, it's watery. Well, not watery, but it's not sauce-like in texture. So we had to Think about soups that we could modify in a way that they could serve as a sauce. And an example was, for example, uh, it's a Malaysian soup that's called laksa, which is, it's hard to describe, but it, it's, it's a little bit spicy. It's, it's made with a paste that is made with like 
you know, dried shrimp with chili paste. It's got different spices in it. So it, it produces a, a really delicious soup. And so we adapted that recipe to be a little bit thicker so it could be used as a sauce. Gumbo, same thing. And it doesn't mean that you like make a gumbo soup and then just like throw it on top of a pizza. It has to be thought out in a different way because the what we're interested in is the liquid. A lot of these soups have like, if you think about gumbo, it has like all this other stuff in it. Uh, it's got the sausage, it's got the okra and so forth, but we're mostly interested in the soup itself. The biggest thing that you want out of your sauce is to make sure that it's, it's when your pizza comes out, that you're not going to have it sloshing around your pizza and that it's not going to be too fake that when your pizza comes out, the sauce is burnt. So it's finding the balance between, you know, the right amount of liquid and the right amount of thickness in the soup, which is now sauce. Now, this cross-curricular blending of saucy ideas reminds me of one of my favorite pizza places in the States, Zante Pizza in Indian Cuisine in Bernal Heights, San Francisco. Dalvinder Multani, a.k.a. Tony, has been a fixture in the Bay Area for over 30 years. He learned how to make pizza in Queens and carried that skill set clear across the country. There is no Indian pizza in India. It was born here only in San Francisco. I invented I'm the godfather of Indian pizza. I used to work in Flushing on a Gloria Pizza. I was newly coming from India, so I don't have the job, so they were hiring, so I just, they hired me as a dishwasher, then make a pizza, learn pizza, how to make a pizza there, early 80, 84, 85, 86. Well, my friend uh, was living here, they just said, why don't you come here, this is a nice here. So I moved back here. The original restaurant in Zante's location was Italian, but Multani took initiative and got rid of all the pasta in the place for Indian cuisine. He did know how to make a pizza, though, so he changed across a little and started putting his Indian menu on top of pies. This is Indian style. This is, you know, we boil spinach, broccoli, add some spiced, some garlic, ginger. It takes a lot of effort to make this. It takes a lot of time. It takes... Hours of cooking the spinach curry sauce. Yeah, it's all, all different. It's not uh, just a, a, a regular pie. This is, a, I make my own dough. The, my dough is very, very different. You know, I add spice in my dough. Uh, it's not a regular white dough. It's just a turmeric, it's kind of yellowish. So uh, that has a lot of thing in there too as well. Chicken tikka masala sauce takes four to five hours to make. And then it goes on a pizza with mozzarella, tandoori chicken, cauliflower, eggplant, garlic, green onion, and cilantro. It looks very unique, very, very colorful. When my tandoori chicken has paprika, it looks colorful. And my cauliflower has turmeric, so it can give a different color. We have a regular pizza as well, like pepperoni, mushroom, sauces, onion. Uh, regular pizza, I'm not famous for regular pizza. I'm famous for only Indian style. And this was not an anomaly. I found Indian pizza places throughout the country. Tandoori Pizza in Winco in Atlanta, Georgia, and a curry pizza chain in Utah. This blending of sauces, well, cultures really, is happening more and more on top of pizza. In Beaverton, Oregon, Aaron and Natalie Trong have found that the sauces they knew from their Asian-American childhoods, though unexpected on pizza, defied fusion, became accepted as pizza at their pop-up turning brick-and-mortar, Papa Pizza. Papa is Hawaiian for mixed in ethnicity. 
Um, usually it's someone who's half Asian, half white. And so uh, we felt like it was a fitting name for our business since we're kind of bringing together uh, both, you know, Italian food and pizza and Asian food and the toppings and flavors that we put on it. I'm uh, full Chinese and then my wife is uh, half Okinawan and half Chinese. And then my family immigrated from Vietnam. So culturally, we're a bit Vietnamese, uh, but we don't have any whiteness. I identify most with Asian American because my parents were uh, kind of the first generation here in America. Like they came here when they were uh, young adults. And then I was the first generation that kind of grew up here. So I felt like being kind of that transitional generation where my parents were very immigrant and then my peers were very American. I felt like I kind of had to toe the line or kind of uh, have one foot on either side of the fence, you know? And uh, so I felt like my whole, my whole life has been sort of a fusing of culture and trying to, to figure out where I fit in. I grew up in the Bay Area, so and would visit Hawaii all the time uh, to visit my family. I'm, I would consider myself very Asian American as well. Well, for me, um, being very Asian American, I mostly grew up on American food and I mean, Asian food as well, but pizza was like a big part of my life. I don't know why my, I, we just grew up eating pizza and, and with Aaron, he grew up eating Asian food. So yeah, so that's kind of where the idea came along, blending pizza and Asian food. Yeah, for me, I didn't grow up eating a whole lot of pizza. I mean, I, I would have it at like friends' birthday parties and that kind of stuff. Um, but whenever my family and I like went out to eat, we would usually go to Asian restaurants. The reason I kind of learned how to cook pizza was actually for Nat, uh, because we, we often joke that we have like very different kind of uh, tastes in food. Like she loved like burgers, pizzas, and tacos and that kind of stuff. Whereas I grew up mostly on stir fry and um, and, and Asian dishes. So when we got married, we kind of had to figure out how to, how to cook for the family in a way that both of us enjoy. After trying to make pizza in their home conventional oven, Aaron bought a portable pizza oven without Natalie knowing. I just remember him like trying to, you know, make dough and then he would do it in our home kitchen oven. And then one day he, he like, there's this big package in the mail and it was this pizza oven and I was like why did you buy this and it was pretty expensive so I was pretty pissed off and I was like why did you buy this pizza oven we're not going to use it like we have no space and and he was like no just believe me like I think we I can make something for you and and then yeah it was a bit of an impulse buy (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know thinking well if I learn how to make pizza then you know like we won't have to go out so much and I could make my own pizza at home that tastes, you know, wood fired and artisan and stuff. And so, yeah, the pizzas turned out so much better. When I got the pizza of it, I was like, I had no intention of starting a business or anything like that. I think the economic thing is just part of my upbringing, you know, growing up in a, a Chinese family, like we were really conscientious, you know, about trying to save money and not eat out too much and that kind of stuff. Uh, and so it's just kind of part of my DNA, I guess. Um and the way that the the whole business came about was because after getting the pizza oven, um, you know, I thought that would be a little less mad at me if uh, we hosted a pizza party and our friends enjoyed it too, you know. And so we uh, we had a, a big pizza party with a bunch of our friends. 
I think I made like a bulgogi pizza or something, and then a bunch of like kind of your regular uh, combo pizza, pepperoni, and that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, a lot of our friends are Asian, and so they, they they were loving it. And you know, we were thinking of all kinds of ideas of fun things you could put on pizza, and uh, they enjoyed it so much that they were like, "You could totally sell these." You know, like these are really good. And you know we have some friends that are pretty entrepreneurial. And so they encourage us to try starting out at the farmer's market because it's a, you know, pretty low risk, easy way to kind of test it out and see how people like it. Um, and so, yeah, since the pizza oven's pretty portable, we are like, maybe we could just bring it to the farmer's market and try making pizza there. And it ended up kind of taking off. Yeah. We're up to three ovens now and, uh, we sell anywhere from 135 to 160 per day. And, and it's only like a four hour market. So we do like 150 ish pizzas, you know, in four hours. On their menu, there's a classic margarita, which happens to have Thai basil on it. A Vietnamese banh mi transports barbecue pork, pickled radish and carrots, cilantro, creamy white sauce, and a sriracha aioli from the traditional baguette to a Neapolitan style pizza crust. But it's pho pizza that's most intriguing. You know, usually cooked over a long period of time with with beef bones and beef broth, and uh, usually it's a noodle dish with uh, you know bean sprouts and basil and cilantro and a bunch of herbs in it. This is one of those things that I spent a long time thinking about because I really wanted to make a pho pizza, but I wasn't quite sure how to get that soup flavor onto a pizza. Like those two don't seem very compatible, but. Uh, yeah, the way that we did it was we we found a way to turn the broth into a bit of a sauce. And then we slow cook brisket in the broth so that it kind of infuses all of that beef broth flavor into the meat itself. And then we put that on the pizza and then throw on the, you know, bean sprouts and veggies and herbs that give it a little bit of a fresh crunch. I remember the first time we tried it, we both looked at each other like our eyes were just like <laughs> huge, just like, what did we create here? This is crazy. Uh, but it, 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 it tastes awesome. That's my favorite one out of all the pizzas we make. Tom Yum is a sour, tart, and spicy soup that has a whole bunch of Thai herbs like lemongrass, galangal, and makrut lime leaves in it. Now, red sauce, shrimp, mozzarella cheese, red onion, tomatoes, mushrooms, and cilantro are found on a pizza, as is Korean pork belly. I think for the most part, I mean, it's just based on whatever foods have had influence on me. So, like, I worked and served in a Korean community for probably six, six years or so as a youth pastor going to a Korean church. And so we ate Korean food all the time. And that influence kind of comes from there. So I spent a lot of time in the Korean community and really appreciated Korean food. So that kind of got mixed into my repertoire of cooking just for us at home. Uh, and then uh, whenever we'd go out to restaurants with my mom, uh, she would take us to Thai restaurants all the time. So we ate a lot of Thai food as well. So I know that there are a lot of other Asian cuisines out there that I have much less familiarity with, but I'd say Chinese food for sure, Vietnamese food from my dad, you know, Thai food from my mom, Hawaiian food from Nat, and Korean food, you know, from my Korean friends and youth group. Yeah, that, at least the, the way that I think about fusion food is I think, yeah, whenever you bring people together, you bring together different influences and that combines and creates new new flavors and new cuisines. I appreciate that. So I'm not really a purist, I, I guess, in, in any kind of cuisine. I'm kind of open to, to anything that tastes good. I'll ask again, what's in your sauce? Or better yet, 
What's the story behind your sauce? Though most sauce is seen as the middle layer of pizza, steamed between crust and cheese, it's so much more than a connector. The nexus for a pizza universe. Thank you to our sponsors, Uni and Miyoko's Creamery, guests Francesco Vestola, Esquale Imperto, Rob DiNapoli, Chris Bianco, Laurel Evans, Michael McSherry, Abby Reisner, Dalvinder Moltani, aka Tony, Aaron, and Natalie Trong. Music by Carol Cleveland Sings, Jack Inslee, our engineer, our logo and episode art by Jenny Acosta, and of course, Modernist Cuisine. In episode 6, Cheese and Toppings, why is buffalo mozzarella considered a luxury cheese? And what makes it different from regular mozzarella anyway? And why don't more people make mozzarella at home? We'll talk to the makers of DIY mozzarella kits, how Wisconsin brick cheese defined Detroit-style pizza, and how to make your own Franken-cheeses like St. Louis Prevel. And why vegans are nuts for imitation cheeses. Modernist Cuisine will teach you the tricks of infusing your mozzarella for extra flavor like you've never had before, even before you put on your pepperoni, pineapple, anchovies, and or mayonnaise. This episode of the Modernist Pizza Podcast is brought to you by Miyoko's Creamery, revolutionizing pizza with our world-changing, new, liquid vegan pizza mozzarella. Loved by chefs and foodies, Miyoko's liquid vegan pizza mozzarella melts, browns, bubbles, and tastes just like a great cheese should, with 98% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than traditional animal milk mozzarellas. Why does your mozzarella matter? Because if dairy farms were a country, they'd be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Americans eat over 3 billion pizzas a year. That's a huge opportunity to make a difference. The Miyoko solution? Delicious cheese made sustainably from plant milk. Founded by renowned vegan chef Miyoko Shinner, Miyoko's is the world's most advanced plant milk creamery, pioneering the art of combining old-world cheese-making techniques with new, innovative technology to craft mouth-watering cheeses and butters. To learn more about delicious liquid vegan pizza mozzarella, follow Miyoko's Creamery on social and visit miyokos.com today. Use the code MODERNIST to get 15% off your next order. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.